Okay, guys, grab your Bibles and open them with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. Um, you know, we were in Romans 7 last week, but I told you when we started this series that we were going to be much in Romans 6, 7, and 8. So we're back in Romans 7. And I want to start reading at verse 1, which we didn't read last week. We're going to read through verse 21. So you follow in your copies of God's Word in Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Here we go. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? Thus... A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Over to verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, oh, that that endures forever. Back in June, um, the senior high students of Gracie Van spend a week on the beaches of, actually it was Gulf Shore, so it's not Florida, but they spend a, a week on the beach. And the last three or four years, I've been invited to go with them, and which I feel privileged to do. But as we were driving down this time, um, that is, Susan and I were driving down, I noticed a couple of things that I thought might be relevant for the present series. 
One of them was a bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker read this way. It said, do something radical. Practice your religion. The other was a billboard. A billboard, it was, um, it was advertising a Baptist church right outside of Mobile. And in, and in fine Nike style, it said simply, just live it. Do something radical. Practice your religion. Just live it. Now, those are two fine statements. No, are they not? I mean, and, and they're easy to, easy to obey, right? <laughs> well, not for me. I mean, they, they taunt me, those statements. I mean, for example, let's imagine you're on your vacation. You're in Florida and you're staying in a high-rise condominium on the, on the beach there in Florida and and it's 2 a.m., and uh, you're sound asleep. And some drunk teenagers decide they're going to party right outside your door. And you bolt from the room, and I say to you, just live it. Or, um, how about this? Uh, your in-laws put so much pressure on your wife that you end up Spending most of your time trying to meet the expectations of your in-laws more than anybody else in your, your life. They're just master manipulators. And I say to you, just live it. Well, I want to. I mean, I, I, I really do. But it's not really that easy, is it? Have you found it to be that easy in the face of all of this? And I haven't even mentioned uh, some of those rather unseemly habits that some of us may have. And looking at me and just and saying to me, just live it. Oh, that's nice. But it doesn't seem, at least thus far, to be producing the kind of Christ-likeness. That I would really like to have. You know, that's what this series is about, guys. How to do a radical thing. Practice your religion. It's about how to affect some much needed change in me. How to live it. I mean, that is this new life that I have in Christ Jesus. This is about how to live it. Now, again, we're in Romans 7 again, guys, and we were there last week. But I hope you noticed that I I read portions that we really didn't read last week, or at least most of it. And we're going to kind of start from the back and go forward in the text. So stay with me. In answer to those questions, that is, how how do I affect some much-needed change in my life? How do I live it? In answer to those questions... The most prevalent answer that Christians hear these days is that if you really want to be a good Christian, and I hate that term, if you really want to be a good Christian, if you do, 
then all you need to do is to simply follow a few easy steps. Um, you know, um, you need to do this and this and this and don't do that and don't do that and don't do that and, 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 and throw in some of this. And that's how you do it. <laughs> you know, we, we approach living a transformed life much the same way we approach, much the same way we approach a diet. You know, what do, what do we, what do we do when we're too fat? No comments. Um, you, 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 you do this and you don't do that and you throw in a little of this. Well, I've been there and I've done that. And, and it, it didn't work. That is long term. The diet didn't work, obviously. And trying to live out my religion hasn't worked following those steps either. I will say that adhering to some of those steps can can produce some rather impressive, even dazzling results in the short term. But long-term transformation doesn't do it. And for many of us who have been seduced by the um, superficial tactics and the magical pixie dust uh, that was given to us by some childish, amateurish Christian gurus from evangelical Neverland, we, we have pretty much come to the conclusion... That um, living the Christian life is a whole lot more than le- reading the latest self-help Christian book or following a few rules that my Christian group gives me. So what is it, guys, that makes this so difficult? I mean, what, why is this so hard to practice my religion? Well, guys, I think that's the first thing that Paul tells us in this text. That's the first question that he answers. And I want you to look at it with me. Why is this so difficult? Let me read you just two of the verses that I read you. Um, one's verse 17. The other's verse 20. Look at them with me. Uh, again, the question, why is this so difficult? Paul says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, gang, do you see that there's something common in those two verses? It is a clause, and the clause is sin that dwells within me. Gang. I hope you know this before now, but if not, here we go. The thing that Paul is pointing out in this, uh, one of the things that he's pointing out in this very rich passage is that there is a profound duality that exists in all of us, in every Christian. There is a me, and then there is something else in me 
that conversion didn't eliminate. And notice what he says. He says it dwells. The Greek word is oikeo, which means it doesn't, it's not simply an occasional visitor. It dwells. It lives there. It inhabits me. Even the best of us, and Paul is the one writing this, but even the best of us have at the center of our being a principle of sin, a principle of evil, a law of evil. Do you believe that about you? Do you believe that you possess right now as a Christian, do you, that you possess a far greater capacity for sin than you ever dreamed. Peter didn't believe that. And Peter was the one that, you know, in Matthew 26 said, Yeah, well, Jesus, you know, the rest of those guys, yeah, the rest of those guys, they'll turn and tuck tail. They'll run, they'll turn on you, Jesus, but not me, Jesus. No, sir, I'll stay right, right with you. And you know what happened to him. Gang, I, I, I guess the best illustration of this, at least from the world of literature, is this little classic. Have you ever read this? You probably saw the play, perhaps. Um, Robert Lewis, Lewis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Robert Lewis Stevenson was the son of some Scottish Presbyterian parents. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I am absolutely convinced that Stevenson wrote this book to try and illustrate Romans 7. If you've read the book, you realize that, or you remember, that the, the, the denouement of the book occurs in the last chapter. It's, um, it's something that Dr. Jekyll writes before he kills himself to explain everything that's been going on. You remember that? It's the last chapter. Now, I'd love to read a whole lot of this to you, <laughs> but I don't think you'd stand for that. And I, don't, I know you don't like to be read to, and I don't blame you. Um, but it, I'm just going to just draw out some words that I'm going to read a little bit later. But here's what he mentions in this. He's trying to explain it all. He talks about a profound duplicity of life. That's what Paul said. Man's dual nature. That's it. That's it. That's what Paul mentions in 17 and verse 20. Uh, I was in no sense a hypocrite. Both sides of me were in dead earnest. Um, I, I had this consciousness of the perennial war among my members, that is, among my body. Um, that man, I, I concluded that man is not truly one, but truly two. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. That's what Paul is saying. There's the answer to your question. That is, what makes this so hard? Why is this so hard? Because there is within us, ladies and gentlemen, all of us, the best of us, a principle of sin that conversion did not eliminate. And you know what? We're the only ones naive about this. The New Testament is not naive. The New Testament mentions it a lot. Let me read you one other place. This is in Galatians 5. Listen to this. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. 
For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's your answer. Why is this so hard? Because ladies and gentlemen, conversion didn't drain out of you all of those juices that long to sin. It's still in there. Friday afternoon, I had a lunch appointment and I <clears throat> ran into um, one of the mothers of Gracie Van and she was out with her daughter and, and she waved me over to her booth and so I went over and she said, I got to tell you this story. And I said, shoot. She said, um, my little eight-year-old girl, by the way, I have her permission to tell this. Um, my little eight-year-old daughter came to me just last week and said, mama, mama, I'm, I'm just, I'm just really got a problem. And she says, well, darling, what's the problem? She said, I'm having such bad thoughts. Now, this is an eight-year-old, not an eighth grader, an eight-year-old. She says, I'm having such bad thoughts. And she said, they're awful thoughts, and it's about my dog. And she said, I, I think sometimes that I want to throw the dog off the balcony. And uh, I mean, I, these horrible thoughts. And so her mother said, well, darling, and the mother was in church last Sunday where this was being discussed, at least in part. The mother takes her little eight-year-old daughter over to Romans 7. And the mother explains to her eight-year-old, you see where Paul says, the good that I would, I do not do, but the very evil. I... You see that right there? Paul had that problem. Yes, Paul. Those are, we, we all we got that. Yes, it's right here, Romans 7. And the little eight-year-old girl staring at her mother listening intently, looks up to heaven and says, Paul, I'm with you, brother. (laughs) The eight-year-old got it. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a duplicity within the best of us. It is called sin that dwells within me. Did you know that? Do you know why, ladies and gentlemen, this is so hard? Because there is a principle within the best of us that wars with the, with the desires of the transformed human that you are now because you're a Christian. Okay, Jimmy, um... I understand why it's hard, but is there any hope for us then? Is there any solution, uh, any any way to, that, that we can proceed in this process of life transformation? Yes, there is, and I'm about to tell you about it just in a minute. But first of all, let me tell you what what won't work. Let me tell you what's not the solution. And I've told you this before, but I'm going to say it again, ladies and gentlemen. I say it again because it is our first instinctive remedy that we turn to immediately. It is something that we think intuitively. It is our default mode. When we're battling with these temptation, our first remedy is to think law. Take 
willpower and apply it to law. I go to the Old Bible and I see it says, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do the other. I say, okay. <laughs> Watch this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna crank up the law in my life. And that'll do it. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know that not only, that not only will that not work, but according to Romans 7, that will make it worse. Before I go too far, let me just say, mom and dad, you parents, if your approach to parenting is simply to crank up the law, then you need to listen to this very, very closely. I want to show you what Paul says. Look at verse 5, Romans 7, verse 5. For while we were still living in our flesh, our sinful passions, notice this next phrase, aroused by the law. You know what you just read? By the way, this is an autobiographical sketch of Paul. You know what you just read? You read something that you already know. You know this. Let me tell you how you know it. You turn to your kids and you say, Junior, don't bounce that ball in this house. What's the next line? And immediately, there is within Junior an uncontrollable urge to do what? Bounce the ball in the house. Guys, there have been studies, numerous of them that have been done. In, in studying alcoholics, and at least the portion of alcoholics that come from a church background, they have a church in their background, do you know where the alcoholics come from? They come from settings, religious settings, that told them, Don't you touch any of that. You don't do any of that. Stop that. Oh, don't oh, quit oh, for, for booting. I'll give you one other story. It's a great, it, it's included in... Augustine's autobiography, it's called The Confessions. St. Augustine tells a story about when he was a young man, he stole some pears from an orchard. And um, later on, he, he reflected upon what he did, and he, he, he asked himself, why did I steal those pears? He said, well, first of all, I wasn't hungry. Wasn't hungry, I wasn't. Eh? He said, secondly, I don't even like pears. He said, he concluded, the reason he stole the pears is because there was a sign on the fence that said, keep out, no trespassing, leave my pears alone, don't you steal any of my pears. Guys, what Romans 7 is telling you is that the law arouses my sin nature. It aggravates. It fans the flames. Repression. Repression of my flesh will never work long term. Dr. Jekyll 
will never be able to control Mr. Hyde by applying more law. I gotta tell you something. I, mean, I gotta read a little of this. Just a little, but guys, if you know the story, Dr. Jekyll develops this, this uh, drug, this potion that he takes that allows him to live this other side of his dual nature. And his name is Edward Hyde. And so he, uh, he also develops another potion that allows him to drink it and get back to Dr. Jekyll. And so on, on occasion, he would drink this potion. He becomes this altogether different, different creature. He enjoys that for a while. Then he comes on, he drinks the other one, and he becomes Dr. Jekyll. And so he does that for a long time. And, and he's, he finds himself, the more he does it, the more he likes Mr. Hyde than he does Dr. Jekyll. And so on one of his occasions when he's Mr. Hyde, he murders someone. And it so frightens him. He's thinking that he's going to the gallows and this is going to be terrible if he's caught. So he makes a, he makes a uh, resolution. That's over. I'm not doing that anymore. It's done. I quit. It's over. Listen, listen to what he, what he writes, guys. Uh, he, he makes a resolution that he's not going to do this anymore. And it works. For two months. For two months, however, I was true to my determination. For two months, I led a life of such severity as I had never before attained to and enjoyed the compensations of an approving conscience. But time began to last, time began at last to obliterate the freshness of my alarm. The praises of my conscience began to grow into a thing of course. I began to be tortured with throes and longings as of Hyde struggling after freedom. And at last, in an hour of moral weakness, I once again compounded and swallowed the transforming draft. Do you understand what he said? I can't do this anymore. I gotta stop drinking. I gotta stop looking at that internet porn. I gotta stop doing those drugs. I gotta stop running around with my wife. I gotta do it. I gotta do it. I gotta do it. And for two months, I did it. But then, in an hour of moral weakness, I once again compounded and swallowed the transforming draft. And he's back to Mr. Hyde. There's one other thing I'm going to read. And this is, he, he goes back to Mr. Hyde and he does a few things and does some bad things. And, and um, he's still wrestling with this. He doesn't want to do this anymore. And he doesn't want to you know, do that anymore. And so one day, he's, Mr., he's Dr. Jekyll. And he's sitting in a park. It's a, it's a beautiful day. And he's sitting in a park. Let me read this. It was a fine, clear January day, wet underfoot where the frost had melted, but cloudless overhead. And the Regent's Park was full of winter chirpings and sweet with spring odors. I sat in the sun on a bench, the animal within me licking the chops of memory, the spiritual side a little drowsed, promising subsequent penitence, but not yet moved to begin. After all, I reflected, I was like my neighbors. And then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at that very moment of vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, 
a horrid nausea and the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint. And then, as in turn the faintness subsided, I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution of the bonds of obligation. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. And the unique thing about this time He didn't take the drug. And so he realizes that he can't win and he kills himself. I guess I ruined the book for you, but. Guys, I'm telling you what won't work law, repression. It doesn't do it. But let me close by telling you what will. What, what will change me? Guys, this is a quote from Thomas Aquinas. And if you don't hear anything else, you might want to take this one down. It's, it's brief. Thomas Aquinas says, The only way to drive out a bad passion is by a stronger passion. I told you about a sermon that I read years ago. I, actually, and that's not true. I did not read the sermon. I just lied. I did not read the sermon. I read the title of the sermon. The title of the sermon by Thomas Chalmers, and here's the title. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And ladies and gentlemen, Paul describes the new affection in Romans 7, verses 1 through 4. And the new affection that Paul describes is that we get married to a new husband. We get, we get, a, we get a new husband. We, um, we, um, we, we, we change spouses. Guys, whereas repression won't work, what will work is that when you discover that the law has died. He says that um, um, the husband has died. The, 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 if, the, if her husband dies, and the husband that he's using here is the law. And it says in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. When we became Christians, ladies and gentlemen, the old spouse died. The spouse of law is dead. And I'm married to somebody else. Guys, nothing changes a woman like the sacrificial love of her husband. We husbands know that. There's nothing she responds to so winsomely as her husband's declaration and demonstration of selfless love. Guys, we've lived that. And what Romans 7 is saying... It is using our experience with marriage to try and explain what's it like to live with Jesus. I'm living with a new husband. I'm living with someone who loves me sacrificially, selflessly. I'm living with someone who is willing to and did 
give his life for me. Gang, look at the text. Look at verse 4. What do you think it starts with the word likewise for? You know about marriage. You understand that a wife gets changed. You know you got you understand all that. Likewise, a relationship with Jesus Christ is that the old husband law, he died. And now you belong to another. Jesus Christ became a new spouse to me, ladies and gentlemen, by dying in my place. And then God uses marriage to help me understand what it means to be in a relationship with Him. The new affection that enables me to shuck off the old is that I now realize I'm married to another. Taste that. And change will begin. Christ brings all the assets. I bring nothing but liabilities. Christ assumes my liabilities. He graciously grants me his assets through a legal transaction that is similar to marriage. What did he ever see in me that made him love me? Nothing. He chose to love me. Let me, let me tell you two stories and I'm done. One of these come out of, actually both of them came out of a book, but one of them came out of a book a long time ago. <laughs> I think they made a movie out of this story, but imagine a, a little boy who has been born into a very poor family. He, uh, he grows up malnourished. He's poorly dressed. He's seldom clean. He's the object of scorn of all his playmates. Uh, he has little education, very few prospects. His father beats him, so he decides to leave home. He leaves home, and he looks for a job, and he gets a job at a very um, swanky country club as a caddy. So one day, he meets this young woman from an extremely wealthy family, and much to his surprise, she makes the request that he be her caddy on a round of golf. That begins a relationship that ultimately culminates in their marriage. At the exact moment that that young man said, I do, his life changes. He, he, he now is the recipient of a new status, a new wealth, a new power, a new prestige. Yet he has earned none of that. He simply got it as the result of a legal arrangement between him and a woman. His marriage changes who he is. It changes how he lives today and for the rest of his life. Because he's married to another. He's no longer a caddy. He's a member of the club. He's not an outsider anymore. No, no, no. He's an insider. All because of a new relationship we call marriage. And Paul takes that and says, likewise, you belong to Jesus. There's a whole new set of rules, whole new status, whole new life, whole new everything. When law died and he became your husband.
Final story. This is one of the numerous stories that's told about Abraham Lincoln. I mean, you never know whether they're apocryphal or not, but I guess there's so many stories because he was such a great man. But uh, there's a story that's told about Abraham Lincoln that he, um, he attended a, a slave auction on one occasion in Baltimore. And um, as per custom, the slaves, both male and female, were all sold naked. And so he uh, watched as this process went on. All of a sudden, they, they brought a woman up onto the auction block to be sold. And um, he decided that he would um, uh, be, in, in, enter into the bidding. This little woman stood there on the auction block with, with rage and fury just imprinted all over her face. And so the, beginning, the bidding began, and, and Lincoln began to bid. And, and ultimately, he offered the highest bid and thus now um, had purchased this young woman. And so he, um, he walks over to her and um, uh, takes his coat off, covers her with his coat, and, and says to her, uh, my dear, you're now free to go. And she looks back at him with this, this, this snarl in her face as if to say, there's, nothing, there's no white man that's ever done anything but abuse me in my life. What do you mean? So she stands there for a minute and he says it again. My dear, you're free to go. And with a, with, a, with a hiss in her voice, she says, Does that mean I can say anything I want to say? And he says, Yes, that's what it means. It means you can. Does that mean um, I can be anything I want to be? He said, um, Yes, that means you can be. She says, um, Can I do anything I want to do? Yes, you can do anything you want to do. Can I go anywhere I want to go? And Lincoln said, yes, dear, you can. You can go anywhere you want to go. You are free now. And she paused for a moment and she said, then I think I'll go with you. You begin to taste of the spousal love of Jesus Christ for you. And it will change you. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, use this treatment of your wonderful word to help define for your people who we are, what we're like, and what it's like to be related to you through faith in Christ. Lord, there are so many people in this room who want to love you, want to honor you. They want to, they want to, they want to see Christ's likeness in themselves. And I think we have listened to gurus who have led us wrongly. And I pray that the Apostle Paul will be our ultimate teacher. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, might this grip our souls, our hearts, and lead us into people who are being made more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Father, if you've led people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, who are still wondering what it means to be a Christian and have questions and and, and obstacles and, and objections to 
trusting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Father, there's not any more that I can do. There's nothing that I can do to convince them. But you can. Would you do that, Lord? Would you speak so, so clearly right now that they can hear of the great beauty of trusting in Jesus Christ? Would you do that, Father? Not because any of us deserve one thing from you, simply because of who you are. Have mercy on us. We ask all that, of course, in Jesus' name.